0: Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors, Metagenics, Integrative Therapeutics, and Biotics Research. The mission of Metagenics is to lead the movement in making personalized nutritional intervention the standard of care in the treatment and prevention of disease and the promotion of optimal health. For over 30 years, Metagenics has been dedicated to scientific discovery, innovative products, unparalleled quality, education, and practitioner partnerships to support lifestyle functional nutrition. For more information, visit Metagenics at metagenics.com. Biotics Research. For over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at BioticsResearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health. By providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources, Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. Hi everybody, welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. I am your host, Dr. Kara Fitzgerald, and we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. Today is no exception. I am thrilled, 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 thrilled to be with Dr. Randy Jurdle. Randy Jurdle has put the field of epigenetics on the map. If you've heard the term, likely it's from his research. Just a little bit of his background, he headed the epigenetics and imprinting laboratory at Duke University until 2012. Um, he's now a professor of epigenetics in the Department of Biological Sciences at North Carolina State University in Raleigh, North Carolina. He's also a senior science at, in the McArdle Laboratory for Cancer Research at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Um, you know, Randy has over 200 peer-reviewed articles and he's got this amazing bio which will actually pop up on the transcription notes if you want to read through it. In fact, you know Randy, your Wikipedia entry is looks looks pretty good to me for people who want a nice background. Um and then you can link over to the university and read more about him. Um he has been given really almost every award across the scientific uh platform with 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 the exception of the Nobel, but I'm sure You've got to be in the running for that, you know. At this point in the game, with your work, um, you've been over at the Karolinska Institute. You've so you've lectured globally on the field of of epigenetics. You've put the field of environmental epigenetics on the map, or just brought that into the scientific uh, language. And I know Jeff Bland refers to what you're doing as nutritional epigenetics. Um, what else do I want to say? You've published not only in the peer-reviewed literature, but two books on environmental epigenomics, uh, and recently you were on a um, English documentary in 2017 called "Are You What Your Mother Ate?" The Agouti Mouse Study, and I encourage folks to seek that out. Oh, and incidentally, uh, Dr. Jirtle was awarded the Linus Pauling Award from the Institute for Functional Medicine in 2014. I was at your lecture there, as were many of my friends and colleagues. And you know, just again, we were we were wowed about what you have done. So welcome to New Frontiers, Dr. Jurdle.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me to talk to you.
0: So You've developed this field of environmental epigenetics, and you've published a lot. You've you, you've really you've used this agouti mouse model to really demonstrate this idea of 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 the influence of environment on on phenotypic expression. And we're going to talk about your background there, but I really I want to try to put into perspective beyond your bio, really what you've done. And and this is a quote I took from that 27 documentary. Um, 2017 documentary, Are You What Your Mother Ate? They say the Agouti Mice Study is the most widely cited study, not just in genetics, but in the history of science. And you were quoted in that in that documentary is saying, um, when you embarked on that research, on the, on the, on the first agouti research study, which, we're, which we will talk about, you said we're either gonna go down in flames or this is gonna be huge. <laughs> so talk to me about epigenetics and give me the background on the Agudi my studies.
1: Well, I mean, it, 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 there's a long, um, I'll try to make it short, I first want to say that I came out, I didn't come out of a standard background for doing epigenetics research, at least the, the background that people now, they, you know, they really study in this area now and get degrees in epigenetics. Uh, my background initially as an undergraduate was nuclear engineering and computer science and i got into biology uh, through radiation biology because i had mm. listened to a couple of lectures which by someone who ended kelly clifton who ended up being my major professor on the biological effects of ionizing radiation i was so amazed by the whole thing because dna at that time i you know being a, <laughs> it's hard to believe this but you know this was back in the around 68 67 wow. 1967 68 <clears throat> And the structure of DNA had just been determined, what, in 1959, and being a physicist mathematician, uh, I didn't know about DNA at that point. So that was my first experience with that. And I, as soon as I looked at it, I said, this is a computer. And I was it was amazing, and you can break that computer by exposing it to ionizing radiation. So that's how I got into the field of biology and then ultimately cancer biology. And while in cancer biology, we identified the IGF-2 receptor, uh, the insulin-like growth factor 2 receptor, as being a tumor suppressor gene. Now, why that's so important from the standpoint of epigenetics is that right at the same time, a scientist in Vienna named Denise Barlow, who very unfortunately died last year in October, and uh, but she did an, um, he was an amazing scientist, and she is really the single person that was responsible for me getting into field epigenetics, because her paper that came out in the early '90s identified the very first gene that is called genomically imprinted. Uh, that, what that means for your audience is yeah, that yeah. even though you inherit a copy from your mother and father, these are on autosomes now, not on the sex chromosomes, but you know they're scattered all over the genome. Basically, most times when the gene is expressed, is expressed from both copies. But genomically imprint the genes, one copy is functionally turned off, and it's always depending on the gene, the one that's inherited from the mother or from the father. So the IGF2 receptor was shown by her. To be only expressed from the maternal copy in mice, and we had just shown that that gene was a tumor suppressor. Now, I was absolutely astounded because if you think about it, the reason you have two copies is one's a backup for the other in case something goes wrong. You've got it's like an engine, two engines on a plane. If one goes out, you still got another one you can fly. Whereas with imprinted genes, only one works. So if that one goes out, you're going down. Mm-hmm. And and it increases the the susceptibility or the importance of these genes in tumor formation by over a million fold. It was astounding to me that on purpose, Mother Nature was turning off copies of genes that were involved in growth and were so important in cancer formation. So in effect, we identify the first imprinted tumor suppressor. I went back to my lab after I read Denise's paper. I said, we're taking our whole lab into the field of epigenetics. So that's how we got into epigenetics. So now a question is very, very important is, since these epigenetic marks were established very early in, in this case, actually in the development of the gametes, or really right after fertilization, the question is then, can the environment, environment I mean like, Big things, nutrition, uh, toxicants, all anything that you would call environment, even behavioral uh, effects, can that potentially alter these regulatory elements that are being contr- that are controlling the expression of genes epigenetically, and that's how we got into the Agouti mouse experiments.
0: I just wanted to clarify for the the listeners. So, in, just defining imprint, basically, epigenetic marks are are it's epigenetically shut down those Correct. marks. Yeah, and and it's consistent, and that there's no change in that. That mark is is lasting through any cell division.
1: In fact, not only cell, you know, it's all definitely, but there's even, as you know, evidence that some of these marks actually might be altered such that they're not even totally erased when they go through the germline. And I don't know if that's true with imprinted genes, but it's surely true with other epigenetically regulated genes. So there's potential for what's called transgenerational inheritance of epigenetic uh, marks. I don't think we'll be talking about that very much today because I don't do work in, the, in this field, but it's hugely important because it's a way in which things can be passed forward into future generations that are not mutations, but are actually problems in the software that continue to go forward. Um, yeah. So that's, that's exactly right. These, these are epigenetically silenced, Copy. So with the IGF-2R, the father's copy is silenced epigenetically, and only the mother's copy works.
0: Now, let's talk, just give me a, give me a definition of epigenetics.
1: Well, epigenetics simply just means above the genome. Mm-hmm. But I like to use the analogy, and I use it a lot, because I, I think it's really a good one, and it also comes, it's consistent with my background in computer science. I think of the DNA as being like the hardware of your computer. So then the epigenome is the software that tells the genes when, where, and how to work. So this is how you can have a single genome. If you were to look at DNA in every cell in your body, you could not determine what's, what cell type you were looking at because the genomes are, are identical in every cell. But yet we have 260 different cell types. So you say, well, how can that happen? It's because this, the, basically the cell is a programmable computer. And you have the same hardware. It's like having 260 Mac computers. I'm a Mac user. 250 (laughs) Mac computers lined up, right? Every computer is running a different software Mm. program, doing a different job. But the hardware, i.e. the DNA, is the same in every situation. It's all a portable Mac computer. So that's what we have in our body. And these programs are established not by somebody sitting at a desk and writing software, but they're actually written into the genome and on top of the genomes right on the DNA and also on the histones that the DNA is wrapped around during early development. So you go from a pluripotent stem cell, you know, from a single cell basically to, you know, all these differentiated cells and that all happens very, very early in development by the end of the, first trimester, basically all the parts have have been defined. Now you're just making, this is getting bigger and bigger and getting refined. So all those programs are established. So the most vulnerable time for deregulating this programming that's being done during development is during the early stages of gestation. And that's why we ultimately use the agouti mouse model because we were looking at the offspring and what effect exposure to the mother as far as nutrition was how that ultimately altered the the ep, the epigenome and the phenotypes of those offspring that were in utero
0: talk about that the seminal 2003 study the one that's been cited the most in all of science you know where you looked at early nutrition effects on epigenetic regula- gene regulation just give us the background of that of that agouti mass study
1: well the marks particularly the ones that are on the dna are, are methyl groups and they're carbon with three hydrogens and they're primarily bound on cytosine which is one of the bases that pairs up with guanine when it's adjacent to a guanine i won't go into why that's important but that's usually so it's cytosine guanine, cytosine is quote five prime of guanine. It's the cytosine that's five prime of guanine that will be methylated. And usually what happens is when it's methylated, it causes the DNA to compact. And that means that transcription factors can't get into the DNA and cause the gene to be turned on. So it's this regulatory elements, they're compacted down and in effect the gene is turned off. That's usually what DNA methylation does. And there's also, as I said, marks, which are, again, methyl, methyl groups, uh, acetylations, et cetera, on the histones that, in concert with the methylation of the DNA, either causes the DNA to be compacted and nonfunctional or open and functional. So all those methyl groups that are used in the programming come from our diet. Mm-hmm. So what are they? Vitamin B12, betaine, choline, and what is the other one? Folate, said, folic acid, <laughs> right? Yeah, folic acid—the big four. <clears throat> so all, so all of the all of these methyl groups. So our thought process, and this is with Rob Waterland. Now, I'm not a nutritionist. I probably would have not done a nutrition study straight up like this because it's not my background. I would have gone more to. A, what we did later on which are toxicants and things like this but really it was the best way to start because nutrition is where it's where the marks are coming from is coming in from our diet so the simple it was a very simple question I said if you load the hopper up with tons and tons of methyl groups in this model system can you shift the phenotype of the offspring And interestingly, the phenotype that you're looking at is really dramatic. Yes. Because there's a you you wanted to know you know why did we put transposable element into the title? Well, one of the reasons is obvious is because there is a transposable element that's upstream of the Agouti gene in this one unique strain of mice. Ah. It's it just sits there. It just jumped in. It's a retrovirus, and it went in there, and it, it now, as a consequence, it started up potentially a alternative start site for the regulation of the agouti gene. So normally, the agouti gene is regulated developmentally, and what that means is that in this animal, what happens is that a black hair shaft is formed, and right at the end of the development of the hair shaft, the agouti gene is turned on developmentally, and it puts a yellow band at the base of a black hair shaft, and you and I now see the animal not as black, but as brown or a goody. So it's a goody mm-hmm. mouse. Mm-hmm. In this animal model, that still happens, but it only happens when that transposable element is totally methylated, so it it in effect blocks the alternative start site from working. So if that doesn't happen, in other words, it's unmethylated and it, the, the transposal element is unmethylated, then the agouti gene is driven inappropriately throughout the animal's life and every tissue of the body. And that means that the hair shaft now is not black or brown, but actually is completely yellow. So now you've got a phenotype or a characteristic of a mouse that goes from brown to yellow with sort of dependent upon totally the methylation level at this transposable element, which is epigenetics.
0: That is so profound. So so normally we're looking at the promoter region like being the agouti that, you know, different than the... the- the promoter we don't we don't think of transposons as being necessarily promoter regions is that is that correct
1: that's correct yeah. but what it, what it did is once that that of dna that transposable element jumped in there it's Mm -hmm. usurped the normal developmental regulation of the gene and the only way you would get normal developmental regulation of that gene back again in other words you would get a brown mouse and brown offspring is if the transposable element is completely turned off through methylation
0: yeah yeah that's amazing can i just ask you how you came upon using the agouti model I mean, well, that's. We,
1: we did not define the igloo. This was already known. So, okay. our contribution to this was to use it and to ask the simple question if you now, in effect, use nutritional supplements, could you move the distribution of coke colors in the offspring through diet? And if that did occur, is it because of changes in the epigenome at the transposable element? Okay. That's what we did. So in other words, we linked nutrition supplements, you know, methyl donors basically, levels of methyl donors, to coat color. But it's even better than this because when the coat color is yellow, the agouti protein is expressed throughout the body, including the satiation center of the brain, and it binds to the melanocortin-4 receptor, and as a consequence the agouti mouse doesn't realize that it's full and it literally eats itself into obesity diabetes and cancer
0: and we'll put a photo up on the um, tr- on the show notes page so you can see this you can see it's really beautiful. yes yeah a normal you know a, a, a an agouti mouse that's that's normal size and brown and then the agouti mouse where the gene is, is not shut down.
1: Yep, and inappropriately, it over, inappropriately expressed throughout the animal, and the animal is just morbidly obese. So if the animal is yellow or has any kind of yellow, there's modeling because it depends on at what stage of development the decision is made to methylate or not methylate, this transposable element. Mm-hmm. So in between these two extremes, a complete brown and complete yellow animals, you have animals that look like, sort of like calico cats, and uh that we got a problem can you hear that is it
0: no i i hear a little no you're fine you're fine okay. you're fine
1: um anyway the printer is going right now so you <laughs> might get a bit of a background it's fine so anyway that's that's the distribution range that you've got going between those two two extremes of brown and yellow And if you have any yellow in the animal, it's absolutely the animal will be obese, get diabetes and cancer. It's totally linked because it's blocking the satiation center of the animal. Mm -hmm. So that's the system. So when we did this study, uh, as I said, we didn't know whether we, we... we knew that there was a link between, you know, the, we thought we could shift these coat colors, but we didn't know whether we'd be able to demonstrate that there was due to changes in methylation at the DNA level at this transposable element. And indeed, we were able to show this very clearly for the very first time. So then what this meant is that at least in animal models, Sort of this fetal origins of adult disease susceptibility was for the first time demonstrated to be due to changes in the epigenome. So there was now a mechanism for something that in humans, had people really didn't have any idea how this worked. It was a complete black box. And the problem with that is you would expect is that when people don't understand a mechanism, there's not a mechanism for it to occur, particularly like something that happened in the first, you know, three to four weeks of, of, uh, of life in effect, affecting something out in time 20 and 30 years ago later in humans, for example, yes. and what's the link between this? And a lot of people just thought it was BS. And that was basically the state of the art of this field of uh, fetal origins, adult disease susceptibility, up until our study in 2003. So in effect, this study ushered in the era of what we called environmental epigenomics. And the way we view diseases has been literally changed uh, really forever.
0: Yeah, profound. Just, you know, just walk me through ever so slightly, because I know we have a lot of other content to cover as far as your research goes, but you know, it must have been just incredible for you guys to publish this. And did you, I mean, did you have any, did you know that you were going to just rock the scientific world to the extent that you did?
1: Yeah, that's why I said either we're going, we're going to be famous (laughs) or we're going down in flames. And you said, why would you say that? Because we were not funded. Uh... Government agencies, basically, for this research. Now, Rob had a Dan and Yogurt, a postdoctoral fellowship so we had he had funding to do these kinds of studies we did, he really wanted to look at the f- effect of nutrition on on the imprint regulatory elements and I said you know that's a great study and in fact people have now done that and, and you know you can see it but I said the problem is scientists are not there um, they're not very accepting of things. And I said, even if you saw a 5 to 10% change in methylation at an imprint regulatory element, you'll spend the rest of your life trying to argue why that's biologically significant. Mm-hmm. So we've got to get a model where it's much clearer, I mean, an absolute connection between methylation, between exposure to methyl groups, DNA methylation, and a phenotype. And that's why we use the agouti mouse.
0: Just so cool. And then your life is forever changed. Period. Both of you guys.
1: Yeah, because in a good way, but we yes. didn't. We didn't go down in flames. We, we did very well. Uh, but uh, yeah, because what happens now, as you would imagine, you're you're out giving a lot, giving a lot of talks, and so you're. What's the word? The ability to to mind the the shop goes down a little bit because you're 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 in high demand in the world yeah and you're not at you're not in the lab all the time I I always I like being in the lab I mean to me it's like it's my playpen you know I just I love it Mm -hmm. so you are not there anymore because you're out (laughs) talking about what you did and one of the reasons for this is because for me anyway, is you're trying to push forward the concept that epigenetics plays a huge role in deregulation of epigenetics, plays a huge role in disease formation. And up until that point, basically everybody thought, you know, a goodly number of people thought the only way you could get cancer or any kind of disease, chronic disease is through mutations. And that's not the case. It's just like if your computer breaks. You, it could be a problem with the hardware, i.e. the DNA or a muta- like a mutation it could be, you know, a chip is gone or something like that that you have to replace in order to fix the chip. But the computer, but frankly, most times the problem with your computer is not hardware, it's software. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing in our cell. I think when ultimately when all is said and done, we'll find out that really the tip of the iceberg is really genetic mutations. And the base of it is going to be programming problems.
0: Yes, right. Yep. That's a. That's yeah. I. Uh, it's a, that's a really nice analogy. I. It, it appears that that is correct. And you know, ever since you guys published, the field of epigenetics has been just exploding. I mean, a couple of years ago, I just did a PubMed search on the term epigenetics, and this was a couple of years ago, and I think I got eighty-four thousand hits. Wow. Yeah.
1: Now, if you would have done it year by year, but by remember, we were doing these studies in the in the initially when I started was the 90s, the early 90s. Everybody that was working in the field of epigenetics at that time, which was primarily people in cancer research, a very very few, and in the field of genomic imprinting, they could literally fit in a room that held 100 to 150 people all over the world.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, <laughs> I mean. It's 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 incredible the number of people. Yes. Well, in two thousand five, we had the first because we coined the term environmental epigenomics, and we had the first meeting in two thousand five here at uh, in Durham, <clears throat> and we took over the big hotel here in Durham, uh, and we had I think um, four hundred and fifty people. Right. Well, Our paper came out in 2003, the uh, Goody Mouse, and then in, we filled the Washington Duke Inn completely uh, and had 450 people in attendance, what, three years later.
0: Yeah, it's just an incredible jump. Well, you know, I have to say, I love your papers and would like you to have stayed sequestered in the lab, but I appreciate, so many of us appreciate um, clinicians, you know, those of us in functional medicine, I mean, around the world, we appreciate the fact that you've, you know, you've really kind of lit the way. You've validated what we've been doing in, in functional medicine. I mean, you've really, you know, you've opened the door for the recognition of nutrition as just profoundly fundamental.
1: And nutrition is medicine. Yes. And we, we we showed that very clearly with our bisphenol A study. So we went from nutrition then. So mm-hmm. now we know that this is the mechanism, at least, as I said, in mice. And now, actually, I think in another week or so, papers coming out in uh, science reports, I think it is, uh, looking at the uh, Dutch famine people. And now it's very clear that... Uh, People that were exposed to famine early in development have uh, their the ones that have increased obesity and stuff is due to changes in the epigenome. Yes, that has now been demonstrated, and it's it'll be an exciting. uh, It was exciting it's an exciting paper not our paper someone else has done it so but it should be coming out next week i think
0: okay i'll um, look for that folks and i'll make sure we get that in the show notes i just wanted to say it's the dutch dutch hunger winter if you um you know if you just put that in your google search you'll be able to p- pull pull up information on that um yeah that so that that moved epigenetics from an animal model you know really firmly into
1: human what, 2013 to 20? It took 14 years, and now we know that what we see in mice is also happens in humans. Yeah, it's very, very satisfying.
0: Give me the background. Just give me the background on on the Dutch Hunger Winter and what they're about to publish, if you can. And then I want to jump back to the
1: what you've I shown. I shouldn't say too much more, but I can tell you that the Dutch. What we know right now is a Dutch famine or whatever is that there was a, an embargo placed on the Dutch people that I think it was in the western part of the country uh, in 1944, 45 in the winter, just before um, the, the Nazi regime fell. and But that winter was particularly severe and there was no, literally no food got into that part of Holland. And it was, I think people were relegated to eating something like 800 calories a day which is really a starvation diet. And I think 20 or so thousand people died. Well, some people were pregnant during that period of time. And, and, but they found, you know, the offspring when born later on, which was actually after liberation, um, were, were smaller than normal. And then they followed these offspring into adulthood and found, and this is Barker was the epidemiologist that first did this. And it's often called the Barker hypothesis where he found that, these offspring that were in utero, particularly in the first uh, trimester, had increased incidence of, of uh, uh, cardiovascular disease, obesity, diabetes, and a, around a doubling of the incidence of schizophrenia. And this is a, a number of people that have done these types of studies. This was also replicated in China, unfortunately, because they had another huge famine in the late 50s and early 60s. And in fact, the same types of phenomena were occurring but again the problem is how can something that's happening so early in development uh be affecting people 30 years later yes there was what's the memory system the gravity well we showed then in the with the agouti mouse system that that memory system at least at that time in mice was epigenetic modifications that's the mechanism
0: yes and Not- and it 's heritable i mean that 's what the Dutch hunger winter is showing that it's-
1: yes because sometimes these marks are not erased completely when they go through the gametes, so there were three papers that came out two thousand and three, which is our paper mm-hmm. it said that ushers in the environmental epigenomics era, two thousand and five Moshe Schiff and Michael Meany published that. Epigenetic modifications can also occur after birth, and the environmental effect is not necessarily what we were looking at, nutrition. It can be behavior, maternal behavior. I mean, it was astounding, completely changed, though they might not know it yet, the field of psychology and sociology, completely.
0: Right.
1: And then the next, 2005, Michael Skinner showed that there was potential for transgenerational inheritance of epigenetic marks. Those three papers, bang, 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 basically defined the whole outside of the jigsaw puzzle for environmental epigenomics. It's extraordinary. we're filling in the blanks. Now there's a lot of blanks and a lot of pieces missing. So yes, out there that are thinking of getting this exciting field, there's a lot of work to do. (laughs) Listen,
0: (laughs) we have to, yeah, no doubt. Well, it's terribly exciting. Okay. So listen, we got to back up and color in the, the paper, the 2005 paper, you know, showing the, the grooming habits and outcome. Can you just, can you just talk about what he looked at and demonstrated there?
1: Well, I'm not, you know, this is not, this is not my, right. research, but it's basically maternal grooming, licking and grooming, they called it. Mm-hmm. So if the offspring were were born, uh, I, th- I, th- I hope I can get this right. Lickers and groomers, they're, they're looking only at the females now. The females became lickers and groomers, whereas the ones that were hands off didn't lick and groom very much. The daughters of, of that, Mothers like that also didn't groom their offspring very much. So it almost looks like a genetic effect, really. It's just inherited. But then they did a mix-and-match experiment. So that when their offspring were born, they took the offspring from the liquors and groomers and put them with the non liquors and they put non liquors with the liquors and groomers, and they found out that it was totally dependent upon what the mother did. So when they looked in the hip, and they were also nervous. So the animals that the mothers didn't lick and groom, they were very hyper, whereas the other ones were very laid back and nice, having a good life.
0: <laughs> right that's right it lowered the str- it, it, it it dictated the resilience of, of the respo- the stress response it impacted stress response big time as well as the behavior
1: yeah so th- so and you then what they did is they looked at the hippocampus because they were looking more at stress and they know that's due to the in part to the glucocorticoid receptor and they found lo and behold the licking and grooming the mother's licking and grooming of their offspring caused the release of dna methylations in the promoter region of the glucocorticoid receptor and turned it on and they were happy and the other ones they stayed methylated and they were hyper They're very it's it was totally dependent upon epigenetic marks but the behavior now was a different environmental factor that could do this and it was done after birth, whereas art, yes. all of it occurred primarily, though not totally, in the first trimester after fertilization. And as I said, the Michael Skinner just took it and advanced it out into time.
0: Right. That's right. It,
1: it's astounding.
0: It's a, it is. It's
1: sh- yeah. done. I mean, as I said, J- I never liked doing jigsaw puzzles. When I did it, I would always do the ones on the edge because I wanted to see how big the puzzle was. <laughs> <laughs> and it's what I did also in my research. We now know how big the puzzle is. It's huge. Yes. But we don't know what's inside.
0: Uh, just extraordinary. Extraordinary, 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 and terribly exciting. Okay, so let's go back to your work. I want to first talk about genistein and what you looked at with regard to methylation with genistein, the, the soy isoflavone. So talk, talk about that.
1: Well, we did that study because, as I said, the first nutritional study we did, we were looking at compounds we knew we could donate methyl groups. So genistein is a sort of a weak phytoestrogenic compound that's present in, in uh, soya products. And soya is eaten by Asians uh, to a great degree, and there's environmental effects. In other words, from cancer formation, if you have somebody in Asia and they move over here to Western and start eating a Western diet, they start gaining sort of the incidence of cancer that's more like the West rather than what they had when they were back in Asia. So it's possible, we thought, that there could be something in the soya itself that was Involved in protecting these people from uh, cancer, so that was sort of the general hypothesis.
0: That's how you picked genistein. Genistein,
1: because it's an active compound that people were looking at from the role of it, the role that it played in cancer formation and things like this. Wow. So we added that was work, this is work done now by Dana, Dana, Dana Dolanoy, who's now at the University of Michigan, and. So we did the same kind of study, and lo and behold, we found that at the level in the blood of the offspring that's comparable to what Asians have in their blood, we found, again, there was a positive uh, response. In other words, there was many more brown animals, and it was due to hypermethylation and the turning off of this transposal element. But the interesting thing about this study is that genistein can't donate a methyl group.
0: Boom. Yeah. So what yeah. the heck? Well so I mean- the question is how the hell is this coffee? <laughs> You're right. This is not a methyl yeah. donor. You didn't give them a methyl donor rich no. diet. You just used genistein.
1: Yes, genistein. So All right. I think mean, it's a it's a so I'm gonna tell you a story because it's very interesting and it's an inappropriately asked over and over. So people will say, What's the mechanism by which this happens, Doctor Turtle? Yes. I say, I know the mechanism. The mechanism of this is that the transposable element in the promoter region upstream of the agouti gene has been to a greater degree or higher probability is methylated so that that region is turned off and the animals are brown. That is the absolute mechanism by which this happens. But what you're asking is a very different question, but still important, but not, you didn't ask it correctly. What you're asking is how can genistein be perceived by the cell to induce the machinery that's giving rise to these methylations that's causing the inactivation of this transposable element? So there's a signal transduction pathway in here that's being activated or pathways. Right now, we don't know what it is, but from the radiation studies that we did later on, I think it somehow has to do with the generation of free radicals and a redox state of the cell. That is the perception system within all of our cells. And different compounds, whether they're genistein, maybe even something that is not subtle, but something even like methyl donors might be doing things like this that are switching this redox state back and forth and that's connected to the methylation machinery and is either causing increased probability of causing methylations or decreasing it the probability of that happening and that's probably going to be dose responsive
0: Mm, okay so it's like i mean are are you talking about sort of the like like something that's like a hormesis type of a reaction? So some...
1: I think many of these, chemical or radiation, it is, my again, this is just a guess we haven't really... You could test this, but we have not done it. I think hormesis and the fetal origins of adult disease susceptibility are basically the same phenomena with different names. Okay.
0: And so a a, a smidge of oxidative stress... Induced it's by the effect. genistein actually suppressed agouti, the agouti And it
1: ended up we have a positive adapter response. So in this system, at this dose, it is a good in, good effect if you think brown animals are good. In other words, they don't become obese, don't get diabetes. Yes, yes, yes. That's good. Yes. So we didn't do this. If you up the levels of genistein, my guess, though, we never did this, unfortunately. We always did single doses at that time. You would get to a level of genistein where it no longer was positive adaptive and actually changed to be negative.
0: Right. Isn't so the
1: curves are always U or J-shaped depending on how you, you, um, how you graph them. And it, it gets down to the, even the fact with folic acid. Yes. Not enough is bad, but my guess is that too much is also bad.
0: Well, that, yes. That, yep, you have to hit
1: a sweet spot. Now, where that sweet spot is, I don't know. I'm not a nutritionist, but, you know, these are the kinds of things that should be done now.
0: Yes, yes,
1: absolutely. The you're thinking about doing, but doing them in a a more of a dose-response manner because I think you're going to see U-shaped curves.
0: Yes. Well, there is some suggestion. I mean, now that we've got mandatory folate fortification, I mean, we have seen some kind of a J-curve you know, or u or shaped curve with, with folates. I mean, it's, it, it, it appears to uh, have the potential to promote cancer. And it, right. it, it seems like when cancer is present, it might have, you know, the ability to promote. Whereas if you're deficient in folate, of course, your risk for cancer goes up as well, you know, among because
1: all the... Because it's too low.
0: Exactly. Yeah, that's right. And so we're seeing that and we're seeing interesting. I mean, that's one of the that's why I'm looking I'm doing, you know, my study. Um I mean, I don't I don't want to go off on that tangent, but uh a lot of us in my world in the nutrition functional medicine world have leaned on methyl donors heavily. This is this was this was the original question that I developed in being a clinician in practice and, you know, paying Attention to the science as much as I could. You know, we started to see this, you know, quote-unquote aberrant methylation pattern of the of 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 DNA being associated with cancer. I mean, hypermethylation of promoter regions, hypomethylation of other regions Mm -hmm. of, of oncogenes. So there's this pattern of sometimes methylation is too intense and it's shutting down a tumor suppressor gene and that's promoting cancer. And then likewise, if there's insufficient methylation of the of the the dna that's associated with problems so there's just this imbalanced um methylation activity associated
1: with the problem you run into when you have one you know one 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 suit fits all basically in other words one dose fits all yes you you put this you lace your flower with with folic acid if you have it high yes you might not have a problem with people except maybe people that have a deficiency in metabolizing folic acid, or maybe even as you get older, your ability to metabolize, it goes down. So now the, the level of folic acid and it gets very that high goes to is much higher and could potentially cause, as you're saying, hypermethylation of the promoter regions of tumor suppressors and could enhance the formation of cancer.
0: That's exactly so,
1: right. It, it, yeah. I mean, you know, one. Suit doesn't fit all.
0: Yes, that's exactly right, and that's what that's what started us on our journey to to research it. We're not using any methyl donor supplements in our study at all. We're using diet, and we're using some other things to fine tune it. Actually, and and, and we can circle back at that at 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 the end. But I wanted to just say, you know, with regard to your paper on genistein, now you're talking about oxidative stress, but in your paper, you actually, if I'm recalling correctly, in your discussion posited the idea of you know a change in the you know the 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 histone
1: um well, it, it can do we you, only one other time that we dana did this also that we looked at histone levels and they're altered in the way i can't remember what the exact results were at this point but they're altered in such a way that they would go in concert with hypermethylation or hypomethylation at the yes. dna level because they tend to work in concert but <clears throat> We didn't know the radiation effects either at the time we wrote the Genistein paper.
0: Okay. All right. Uh,
1: All right. I'm looking looking at the last study we did actually at Duke was the radiation.
0: Before we go to the radiation study, we'll get there. Maybe I'm being too anal here.
1: (laughs) No, no, no. I I don't want to go. I want to go to the bisphenol A study.
0: Yes. Let's talk about the bisphenol A study. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: So the next thing we wanted to ask the question, because I'm you know, i not a toxicologist, but I've always had a fascination with toxicology, and I'm a member of the Society of Toxicology and stuff like this. And so there's a whole class of compounds that are called non-genotoxic agents. In other words, they cause cancer in animals, but they don't mutate. So you know, then you can say, well, if they don't mutate, if you think that's the only thing that's important, then you can make the assumption kind of like, if they don't mutate, then they're not a problem, right? That's mm-hmm. what people can do, but that's not probably appropriate because if they are not mutating, it's potentially possible that they're altering the epigenome. And But if you've never looked at the epigenome and hadn't thought of that as being potentially important in the etiology of cancer formation or any kind of these chronic disease formations... Uh, you've never, ever looked at it before. So this is the very first study that looked at a non-genotoxic uh, compound that is a estrogenic compound, and it, uh, it causes cancer in, in animal models. So our, a simple study, again, was again done with, by Dana Dolanoy, was whether or not it altered the epigenome. And doing the same classic study that we did with you know, nutritional supplements and with genistein, Lo and behold, at the level that, of exposure of the mother, they gave comparable levels to what we we're all exposed to bisphenol A because it's, it's all over. It's in plastics, that you can, particularly in the older days. It was even in baby bottles and water bottles and mm-hmm. you know, the coatings of your teeth. And every time you picked up a, a, a receipt, uh, there's, there's bisphenol A on the paper. So it's, it's a lot. Of, we have a lot of exposure to bisphenol A in the environment. So we did the study and we found that, at, again, we've, in this case, we found that bisphenol A was negative It caused a shift towards the yellow animals, which is what we kind of expected it to do because it fit more with its role that it potentially was involved in, in cancer formation. Yeah. That was interesting, but what was the most important part of the study was not really that. Then what Dana did is added into the mother's diet, genistein or methyl donors Mm -hmm. and in both of those situations we were able to negate the negative effect of bisphenol A on the epigenome and on the phenotype of the offspring so it clearly shows that indeed when you're talking about epigenetically regulated situations that are giving rise to chronic disease problems food is medicine yes yes it's yeah. incredible.
0: Yes, elegant, just beautiful, simple, and simple. I mean,
1: you, an idiot can understand this. It's that clear. Right. What the problem with uh, we don't know what the targets are. You don't know exactly what the dose response levels are. I I don't know if it, it's even that important, but it's it's going to be dependent upon people like yourself doing studies now in humans. And looking at it from these perspectives, i.e. not only knowing what the target genes that are important, but also yes. the dose response manner, uh, we need to know this information because otherwise we're not really going to understand. And you're going to get one person saying, well, it causes an increase in, in problems. Another one will actually might say, well, no, it's, it's advantageous. Well, it's probably because it's a dose response problem.
0: Yes, that's right. I get it, but by and large, your aguti studies are, as you you know, what you've said, epigenetics—the science of hope—and these are just very elegant examples of why it is. I mean, so here's BPA; it's ubiquitous. Um, it's a it's a it's a you know endocrine disruptor. It's it's, right. um, and and you've you inhibited you inhibited toxicity. By using methyl donors and by, and, and by using genistein. And again,
1: just... So a methyl donor and a non-methyl donor, and yet we can still shift that curve back. Yes, that's just, it's just lovely. So when we get back, what's the sensing system in the cell? Mm-hmm. and How is it connected to the machinery that's in effect setting up our epigenome? Those are fundamentally important biochemistry problems. And we're going to have to get chemists and biochemists that are interested in that type of biology. So yes. To come in and start helping us uh, sort out those pathways.
0: You know, you and I were talking about funding at the beginning of the study, and I'm, you know, grateful that um, the company Metagenics is is funding my research. And you talked about using private, well, Danon funded your original Agudi study. And, I mean, somebody's, you know, they're, this is nutritional science and I don't know that it's, you know, very robustly funded, but that's where we need to be answering these questions and looking at the dose response. So hopefully, you know, the dollars will, you know, the money, the, the money stream will step up and, and allow us to really get in there and answer the questions.
1: Yeah, I would hope so. But as I said, from my experience, everything we were really known for, it's not only the Goody mouse, but actually in the field, of, you know, imprinting, most people don't even know what it is, but a study that I'm particularly excited and was still excited about is the fact that we we uh, we discovered the the evolution of the phenomenon of genomic imprinting when it happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's if you think about it. I mean, what we showed clearly is that the phenomenon of genomic imprinting is only present in theory in mammals. And those are animals that give rise to live births. So marsupials and eutherians have imprinted genes, but monotremes, which are a mammal, like the platypus and echidna, but lay eggs. Birds, lizards, et cetera, all the way down do not have imprinted genes, and that's what we showed. So we were the ones that demonstrated that the phenomenon of genomic imprinting, the machinery that was required for the mother and father to selectively inactivate one copy of different genes, Arose about 150 to 200 million years ago, and we still have them. Right. This is phenomenal. Can
0: you, well, can you tell me about that study now that you've thrown
1: that teaser out? Okay, so that that is you, the study. What we had is. How, how did you do it? Well, what we did is we got tissues from all these different mammalian, non mammalian species, and this is before any genetic information was even known. There was no genome information available on the web and i'm telling you it was not easy to do this this is work done by um killian when he was in my laboratory and so we had a frozen zoo and we just went phylogenetically down all the way from humans through monkeys lemurs because we have a lemur colony at duke down to the near primates and down in all the way down to mouse, and I said all the way down to birds and lizards. And we found that the only animals that have imprinted genes are marsupials and eutherian mammals. Marsupials be like kangaroos, opossums, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And they have live birth. They're very immature, but they're live. Mm-hmm. Eutherians like us obviously have live birth too, but monotremes lay eggs and they hatch them like chickens. And they do not have imprinted genes. Huh. So imprinting arose with the advent of basically vivitarity, live birth. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, the implications... That about 150 to 200 million years ago. God, that's fascinating.
0: And again, just to remind you folks, so the imprinting is actually epigenetic marks that inhibit, you know, completely through the... uh...
1: Either the mother or father's copy, depending upon the gene.
0: Yeah, right. So that's shut. So that gene, that that particular copy is shut down. Um, all right. So let's talk about the, the 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 we're we're getting towards the end of our our time together, sadly. But I want to talk about the low dose ionizing radiation study, and your findings there because that's, you know, e- that's very interesting. Again.
1: Yeah. It, this is work done by Autumn Bernal. She was my last graduate student at Duke, <clears throat> and. I, as I said, I got my background was engineering and got into biology through radiation biology. So I was in, we'd done now nutrition, methyl group donors, Genesee, a, a, a nutritional supplemental compound, but doesn't donate donors. Then we got into bisphenol A, which is a non-genotoxic agent, a endocrine disrupting agent. And then, so the finish off, basically, and almost to come full circle, it was, I wanted to know whether a physical agent could potentially also alter the epigenome early in development. Something like ionizing radiation, and particularly very low doses, the kinds of doses that you would get, for example, if you had a chest x-ray or a CT scan, that's the levels we're talking about. Very low, not the high ones that most everybody works with. High doses we know are not good. Uh, Low doses, you know, you don't know, because there's a lot of evidence, again, and the phenomenon is called hormesis. And I've known about this since I was in graduate school, and it was the same thing. Low doses of a toxic agent like radiation were showing up as being positively adaptive. In other words, individuals that were exposed to low doses of radiation in this one rad or one centigrade level of radiation, which is about what you would get for the CT scan, we're showing up with reduced incidences of cancer—not increases, but reduced—or not even neutral, but reduced incidences of cancer.
0: That's fascinating in humans, in animal models, in animal models. Okay.
1: So you know, and, you, and as I said, most people—the data. Just if anybody's interested in the, the person that's done the most as far as accumulated this kind of information his name is Ed Edward Calabrese from the University of Massachusetts yes in Amherst and he, he, just look up his name and you'll see there's you'll be able to document this there's a lot of evidence that this is correct but the problem again is the same thing you had with the fetal origins of adult disease susceptibility what when you only think about genomes being the problem that causes anything like cancer for example it is impossible for something like this to occur there's Mm -hmm. no mechanism there's no known mechanism but there's a difference between no known mechanism and no mechanism Mm -hmm. The word known right and what we showed with low doses of radiation is that those low doses of one to three centigrade actually cause a positive adaptive response and i'll tell you what happened it's a great story so Autumn came in. She's the one that was doing these studies. And I said, I mean, "We and they're difficult studies because they all have to time pregnancies and all that. And we hit the developing fetus right at the time of implantation. So the embryonic cells were hit when they were embryonic stem cells, very, very early in development. And then the dose is gone. I mean, that's it. Boom. It's not like chemicals where we didn't know because we gave them two weeks before throughout the pregnancy and then up to the time basically the animals were... Were uh, weaned this is not the case bing one you know microsecond almost and the dose was delivered and we knew exactly when it was and so I said well how's how's the experiment going and this is her direct quote she said it's freaky (laughs) and I'm thinking this is like someone coming into my office and says can I talk to you (laughs) not a good thing (laughs) and I said What's freaky? She said, there are no yellow animals. The offspring are all either heavily mottled or brown, all of them. In other words, healthy. Healthy. In this system, healthy. Isn't
0: that incredible?
1: Now, I said a little more flavorful way of saying it, which I won't repeat. (laughs) I said, oh, no. We're in the middle of hormesis. Wow. And we are going to have to do a dose response curve. And when we did that, we found the J-shaped type dose response. And the optimal for this positive adaptive response is somewhere between 1 and 3 centigrade. And then when you get higher, you start losing that. And it looks like it crashes the abscissa that we weren't able to go up that high because the direct effects of radiation, which is direct damage to DNA, resulted in a reduction in the number of offspring or percentage of animals or mothers that became pregnant. So you're seeing direct damage from radiation. Radiation causes damage both through an indirect phenomenon and a direct. One is it directly breaks DNA uh, backbones and stuff like it causes DNA or knocks out electrons and bing, it causes damage. But at 80% of the damage is through the generation of free radicals. By interacting with water, those free radicals can be sucked up by antioxidants. Uh-huh. Right? So, 80% of the damage we know in any irradiated biological material is because of, of the generation of free radicals. So, once we found this positive adaptive effect, it was clear that if, because of the way radiation works, that if indeed this was real and wasn't just an artifact, we would then see if we put antioxidants, fed the mother antioxidants at this optimal dose of radiation for inducing positive adaptive responses, we should be able to eliminate it. And indeed that's what we did and showed that clearly. So in this study, everything is turned on its head. Yes, the of radiation are advantageous, and antioxidants are not advantageous. <laughs> right,
0: right, right. Well, you know where we see that in humans. There's limited, limited research. There was this older study that really, kind of got me excited. Was looking at exercise. Exercise yeah, is yeah, oxidative. And Exer-
1: it's oxidative damage.
0: Yes, and it turns so. So then it turns on our you know, this beautiful, robust, endogenous um, Breaking
1: response. Breaking down a muscle and, and generation of... Re- reactive oxygen species right
0: yeah well it'll and well it'll turn on glutathione synthesis also like we have this really nice robust response system as well that our body can kind of dictate and control so yes this oxidative process turning on the sormesis the sormetic reaction is is healthy it's it's and then we
1: bulk up and that's why you have to exercise you lift weights and then you wait a day or so and then you lift them again
0: so what you guys showed is a smidge of ionizing radiation induced beneficial outcome it actually supported the appropriate methylation of the of the agouti
1: gene it was dependent upon the generation of reactive oxygen species because when we eliminated that through the use of antioxidants, the effect, the positive effect was totally eliminated.
0: And one of the things we've been thinking about in my world and dialoguing about is that for all of us, we all need to be exercising. And, you know, most of us are taking antioxidants of one form or another, certainly in our, in our diets, what we're consuming. And then some of us are doing it supplementally. And we measure oxidative damage. You can do that with Eight hydroxy two deoxy guanosine or F two isoprostane, so we can measure that in the urine or in the blood of people, um, and so some people need oxidant, you know, extra antioxidants and so on and so forth. But one of the things we've been thinking about is if somebody exercises, you don't want to take your antioxidants right after exercise. So not just a dose response, but also a timing.
1: Right. Um, so, so I mean, this is what I'm. This is Kara. This is the kind of studies that need to be teased out. Yes. Because you know everybody think, oh God, Anna, you go, know, oxygen this is terrible. Well, not necessarily true. And immune responses, we have this too, and it kills things, right? And sometimes yes. it kills things that are not good for us. So it gets rid of bad things. So you you wouldn't not have knocked down this response necessarily, but if you over. Overstimulate. I mean, you get to the too much. Yes. And now you're in the toxic range. So, the question that was really interesting, we never addressed. So, in other words, what happens if we went up a little bit higher in the radiation where we still didn't have too much direct damage and we're getting closer to crossing that abscissa? So, we weren't seeing any positive adaptive response. If we use antioxidants there, would we now drop down into the part of the curve? Where we had a beneficial effect. Yes. That would then demonstrate that antioxidants are good and radiation is bad.
0: Well, yes, yeah, yeah. at a dose, at a particular dose.
1: Much damage. Yes, that's right. And it's like when I used to, and I was very aware of this because when our fully, you know, our original study we talked about with the booty mouse, I said we have to be careful. When when people would interview me, that that people didn't go out and buy you know a tub load of folic acid.
0: Yes, a little
1: is good. A lot must be really good. And I always use the analogy. I said we have there's good evidence, you know, that maybe a little bit of wine a day is good for your cardiovascular system. But I said I can guarantee a gallon a day is not. Yes. So yep. you've got to be careful about dose. Yes. And as you said, timing.
0: Right. It's just—it's so fascinating, and you, you know, it, there was a there was a study. I think it was Cochrane that looked at food folate, you know, and negative outcome. And there is no association with food-based folates, and that's actually one of the reasons why in our study we're using a methyl donor-rich diet. We're not actually supplying but supplemental one of the methyl donors.
1: For this is that you couldn't maybe you couldn't eat enough folate in food. You yeah. know what I mean to get yes. up to a toxic level. Whereas when you're taking supplements, yes. I mean it's just a bottle of it,
0: yes, that's right, that's right and i, I do think that there's th- th- so clearly with the field of epigenomics, which you know you've put on the map our my massive take on is that you know we need to be paying attention, you know that we just you know it, it absolutely more is not better, and we have to look at what we're doing and take responsibility yeah, um yeah, that's
1: go ahead. Good. I was saying I th- you know we ha- and we have to now look at we have to be cognizant of the po- aware of the, of the problem of dose is mm-hmm. important and as i said things that may be good are only good at when levels are high and not when they're in in the optimal range and it, yes, you know, all this kind of stuff needs to be needs to be sorted out
0: yes yep
1: and yeah. and, and it needs to be done Animal models are great because, like with our animal, we, you know, it was. People would say, "Well, does that mean?" I said, "I think this can be extrapolated to humans." But I said, "If you think about it, this is a model system. I mean, in reality, another mouse strain wouldn't even react the same way as this mouse strain does because they don't have the transposal element upstream of the agouti gene." Mm -hmm. But the concept that epigenetic phenomena is responsible basically for the fetal origins of adult disease susceptibility in other words deregulation or whatever reprogramming is the is the mechanism for this i think is extrapolable to all mammalian species and that's what i said it's now been shown absolutely to be also the case in humans it's nice to demonstrate that but you know what are the target genes within the mouse versus in the human i don't have any idea because it It couldn't be the agouti gene in most mice because it doesn't have this transposable element. Yes. But the concept that it's epigenetic can be extrapolated. Yes. Now you're working out, as I said, we defined the border. Now we have to fill in the pieces and that has to be filled in, in reality really to a great degree, I think actually in, in humans, and then maybe come back out when you have your associations to see if you can demonstrate these kinds of effects also in animal models i mean you're going to be going back and forth between human and, and animals continuously or using human systems like these organoid cultures and stuff that are coming out now that are really powerful where we don't have to extrapolate necessarily as much as going into a different animal because you're using human cells
0: mm-hmm. I think it'll be the i you know this study that we're doing is 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 pretty pricey i mean it not i don't know not perhaps from big yeah. pharma vantage, but from our world it's it's you know it's going to be pushing two hundred thousand mm-hmm. um but one of the things if one, one thing that needs to come from from the field of epigenetics is you know clinical access to testing the epigenome and i know that we need to identify those regions that are worth looking at but um right now it's completely you know limited to research um but if we were i know if if there if if we had some ability to measure the epigenome directly um in our world that would be really exciting to begin to see what what actually impacts it that we're doing. And I know, I mean, and we're impacting it all the time. I mean, we know lifestyle habits, diet, you know, the supplements that we're using, medication, et cetera, the toxins we're exposed to are influencing it. So I hope one of the things that that, that is available to us at some point is a, you know, is, is clinical access to epigenetic measurements.
1: Well, one of the things you were, I think one of the last questions, you know, what are you doing now? Yes. And then we probably can.
0: Yeah, we do. We need to. We need to wrap up here.
1: So, the, you want to? What we want to know is, you know, what what epigenetic—I call them—what epigenetically labile targets or regions in the genome are yes. more susceptible to environmental changes and give rise to some of the most significant, severe problems that we have developmental disorders, schizophrenia, autism, cancer, those big things, right? Maybe diabetes and obesity even. Uh, and the role that genomic imprinting plays in all of these is, is quite clear. But we don't know the repertoire of imprinted genes, even in a mouse, let alone in a human. And even more important, we don't know the regulatory elements that are the epigenetic regulatory elements that are controlling this monoallelic expression in a parent-of-origin-dependent manner. So all of those regulatory elements within our genome, which probably I'm guessing are in the thousands, because the imprinted genes they control are probably more in the hundreds. We need to define that. And collectively, we call those regulatory elements the human imprintome. They're all the regular, not the genes. The genes are not the imprintome. It's the regulatory elements that control the monolylic expression that we need to define. And that's what we're doing right now at NC State. Wow. Um, if we can pull this off and get a good handle on the human imprintome, what does this mean? It means now that you, for example, can literally screen a thousand sites, and not necessarily would you find changes with nutrition later on, but you might find things that are incredibly important in maternal nutrition during embryogenesis. They ultimately might give rise to bad problems if they weren't appropriately methylated or unmethylated, depending on, you know, what way you want to look at it.
0: And then we'll need to obviously define the, the set of clinical tools that best, best augment
1: keep those things getting screwed up yep well but you can't I, do that unless you know the targets
0: yeah that's right so that's where we are that's it's that's quite exciting i i it's just really exciting so i I'll, I'll i'll certainly be paying attention to uh to your journey
1: well somebody might say well why can't you do this in mice i mean it'd be a lot easier i mean you the reason is because mouse, the repertoire of imprinted genes in mouse is different than in humans. It looks like once this phenomena arose, that the phenomena of imprinting genes literally was used to drive evolution speciation. So you wow. have different regu- different repertoires. It gives me goosebumps thinking about it. Different repertoires of imprinted genes, depending upon the species you're looking at, once, if we can pull this off in humans, we can then look at this same phenomena in chimps and go on down the line, and potentially find those genes in those regions that actually might have been involved in the speciation itself. Hmm. Extraordinary! Just I don't know if we'll be able to pull that off ourselves, but I see that as this is where this whole field is got to and will go because it's just so damn exciting and important
0: that's it's extraordinary (laughs) that's absolutely extraordinary um well listen dr jordan i just wanted to thank you so much for spending your um wednesday afternoon with me
1: well it was a real pleasure and hopefully someday i'll get to meet you
0: Yes, absolutely. Yes, indeed. I I I I our paths will cross. I'll keep you posted on on our study and and once we have those data, I'll I'll ping you with them if you want to if you want to take a look at them. That would be wonderful.
1: Okay. Thank you very much.
0: Absolutely. And that wraps up another amazing conversation with a great mind in functional medicine. I am so glad that you could join me. None of this would be possible through the years without our generous wonderful sponsors, including Integrative Therapeutics, Metagenics, and Biotics. These are companies that I trust and I use with my patients every single day. Visit them at integrativepro.com, bioticsresearch.com, and metagenics.com. Please tell them that I sent you and thank them for making New Frontiers in Functional Medicine possible. And one more thing, leave a review and a thumbs up on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're hearing my voice. Um, These kind of comments will promote New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, getting the word on functional medicine out there to the greater community. And for that, I thank you. Until next time.